All right, let's have the rest of us open up to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Spiritual people need spiritual food. Amen? I am, it's, I'm blessed to be able to study and to be in the Word on your behalf, because when I, when I am, I get fed. <laughs> and I'm not very disciplined if I'm not, so praise the Lord for this this opportunity to be in the Word together. As I think John was praying, which was in my mind before John prayed, so it was originally my idea. <laughs> Lord, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord, create in us a hunger and thirst for what you want, for your life, for the things of your Spirit. Jesus, if we're born again, that means that we're born again of your Spirit. Your Spirit is within us. And, and Lord, just let that rule this morning. Let it roll into the week and into our families and our lives and our jobs and just rule and reign this morning as we open your word. Um, I just want to thank you for everyone this morning who's here. You know the heart and the circumstances each of us are in. And so we come to you and we ask that you'd speak out of these words in this task, text. In the name of Jesus, amen. Acts chapter 25 not a whole lot theologically here. So we're going to try to do two chapters. I know. <laughs> Let me hear it. <laughs> two chapters. Yeah, right. We left off last week at the end of chapter 24 where Paul is a, pre- a prisoner in Caesarea. That's on the coast there in, in the Mediterranean uh, in Israel. Uh, the governor, the Roman governor Felix, has heard the accusations by the Jews and has found no fault with Paul. Uh, however, because Felix desires to not upset the Jews and at the same time desires not to go against Roman law, he does what politicians do, nothing. And so he just does nothing. And that's what's happening. Paul is sitting in the middle of nothingness. <clears throat> Because if he goes ahead and, and executes Paul, he's going against Roman law. He's innocent, hasn't had his day in court and all that stuff. If he goes ahead and uh, you know, lets Paul go free, he's got Jewish leadership who have great influence over the Jews who he's ruling over in upheaval. And you just don't want to have that. And so what do you do? You do nothing. And so that's kind of what he's doing there. And they listen to Paul as we, as, as we ended the last chapter 24. Felix, it seems, was entertained by Paul. How many of you are entertained by people because of their charisma or personality or whatever it might be? But this uh, guy, Felix, he was entertained by Paul. And he and his wife, Drusilla, called for Paul. In verse 24 of chapter 24, it says that they listened to Paul speak about faith in Christ. You know, tell us, show us your tricks. Play me a song. And they listen to him uh, talk about faith in Christ. So Paul is using every opportunity he has to share the gospel. In verse 25, it says that as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid, or Felix trembled and said, that's enough for now. (laughs) He does nothing again. Uh, You may leave. Get out of here. Now, when I find it convenient, I will send for you. And, and how that is when the Holy Spirit begins to convict the heart, we kind of say, that's enough for now. You're starting to mess with my kingdom. And that's exactly what the Lord does. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He starts to get right in the middle of your business. 
And he wants to change your world, turn it upside down. He wants to infiltrate that strong tower, that uh, impenetrable uh, fortress of darkness that you have been building up and built up by your own nature and also by being by nature, children of the devil, a child of the devil, you have this spiritual fortress in your thinking and in your heart and the way you are, you're spiritually dead. And Jesus Christ says, I'm coming to kick down that door and give you life. But we love darkness rather than light. Felix loved darkness rather than light. And so he said, I'll see you later. Go away. Because he was a very sinful man. How many of you have had that in your life? When, you get, when the light starts shining in your life, you're like, get away from me. We all have had that. We all know it. And so Felix did that, and that light started to penetrate that darkness. But Felix, he said, he, he, he asked Paul back several times because he wanted to seek a bribe out of him. It seemed like Felix's God was money. Felix's God was power. If, if you're the king, why are you asking Paul for money? You know what I mean? And this guy would send people out maraudering and all this stuff and attack different cities within his own kingdom and neighboring kingdoms that were under the same jurisdiction, so to speak, of the Romans. And he was just a greedy guy. But apparently uh, that's what happens. And this went on for two years. Two years of just nothing. And Paul is being just caught in this legal system where nothing can be resolved because of the political powers that be. He's innocent. He's sitting in this legal system and he's just waiting it out. Meanwhile, the only guy who can do anything about it just wants money out of Paul, and Paul won't give it, but he keeps giving him the gospel. And verse 27 tells us, when two years had passed, how would you like that? Felix, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Uh, but because Felix wanted to grant favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. That's just dirty. So Felix's governorship ends. Josephus, the historian, tells us that there was a riot in in Caesarea between the Jews and the Syrian uh, sect there. And Felix used such devastating force to quell it that the Jews actually, a a section of the Jews, uh, complained to Rome, which actually got him kicked out. Funny thing is the Sanhedrin, they actually supported Felix. And so this could be part of that little deal uh, between them to gain favor between the political power. But the Jewish people said, we are tired of this guy. He is heavy handed on us and get him out of here. And so the Roman government actually listened and they replaced him with this guy, Festus. And so um, in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, the new guy, the new governor, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented charges against Paul. I thought we already did this. Yes, how frustrating. They requested Festus as a a favor to them uh, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. And Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. But some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So it's been two years, and the Jews are still gunning for Paul. They're still gunning for Paul. It's been two years. Perhaps it's the same group who promised not to eat until Paul was dead. And so they're really hungry at this point. They're they're just like, we got to eat. So come on, let's get this guy. No, that's not what's going on. That wasn't what motivated them. They weren't hungry. It was hate. Have you ever hated someone? You ever hated someone? Someone wronged you? Boy, I don't know about you. 
Um, but I've heard of people who hate people. And when they hate people, it, it starts as something, uh, starts as bitterness in, in a heart. And then it grows to obsession, and then it actually consumes a person. And that turns into not just hate, it turns into murder. And that's what's going on in these guys' heart. They had a root of bitterness that they allowed to grow, and that grew into hate, and hate grew into murder. And that's, that's, that's what's going on here. It's two years later, and they're seeking to murder Paul. You know, that's what hate can do to a person. It can preoccupy your life. It can preoccupy your life. And the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 12, it says in Hebrews 12, 15, says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause any trouble and defile many. Don't let that happen in your heart, in your life. If you've got a root of bitterness, take care of it now. The antidote for, for bitterness is forgiveness. It's the cross. And I don't know about you, but how many of you have had some serious grievances against you? People have done some serious things. And this is the hard thing, is that God says, unless you forgive them, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. And so what the Lord does is he says, think about what you've done to me. Think about the things you've done to me. And how wicked that's been and how right I've been towards you and innocent I've been to you. Do I deserve what you've done? No, we haven't. But what does God do? He has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And we start to bring up our sins and our faults to the Lord. Say, Lord, remember when I you know, did this and that and this? And we can have that long list. And what happens? He goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's gone. It's forgiven. In the same way, forgive someone else. Now, obviously, that gets into the deal of trust. It doesn't mean we need to trust people. We can set boundaries and be biblical about things. But forgiveness, it consumes us. If we do not forgive, we are the ones who lose out. Quite often, the people we're angry with have no clue. They're oblivious to it. So allow the Lord to, to speak to you on that. Jesus added, addressed bitterness and anger in this way. He says, you have heard it said that people, go, uh, that people long ago say, you shall not murder. Yet anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, Raka, is answerable to the court. Obviously, that meant something pretty bad. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come offer your gift. Anger and bitterness hinders our worship to God. If we aren't right with one another, we're not right with God. Do you know that? So we want to worship and we say we're going to love God. We need to go and address that as best as we can in our own hearts, correct? And how many of you, that feels like the cross? That feels like, ouch, that feels like the death of everything that you are. Well, that's where you're going to find life, my friend. That's where you're going to find freedom is in the cross and forgiveness. And that's something the Holy Spirit does. And many of us are crippled by anger and bitterness and all those types of things. You know, I, I think that I'm healed and all that stuff, and all of a sudden something will pop up from the past, and I'll go, man, what in the world? What's that? And the Lord has to remind me, where are you going to take that? Are you going to dwell on that? Are you going to go scheme in your mind? Are you going to let that fester? 
Because that is a foothold of the enemy to destroy your life. Or are you going to take it to the cross? And are you going to do it my way and lay it down and say, Lord, I forgive. I choose to forgive by faith. Not by feelings, by faith. And obedience. And Lord, help me with the emotions to follow. (laughs) Amen? But anyways, Festus was trying to win favor with the Jewish leadership, invites them back to Caesarea and brings to charges against Paul. And he said, this, is, this had already happened with Felix, but Felix did nothing. And now under a different governor, it's happening all over again. How frustrating for Paul. Verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. So he was in Jerusalem. Now he comes back and he has the whole entourage of, of the Jewish leaders there. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. And when Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. And they brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Again, they did not. They did this two years earlier. And when they accused them of insurrection, of being a part of a rebel leadership, and of, uh, of desecrating the temple, they found nothing wrong with him. Same thing. It didn't stick, and it's still not sticking. Verse 8, then Paul made his defense. He says, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. So those were the charges they brought up the second time. Same thing, violating Jewish law the temple, and insurrection against Caesar. In verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. You're a new guy in charge. You're a governor. You've got Paul. Who cares about Paul? But you've got this group of leadership. What are you going to do? You're going to try to win their favor. You're going to take them out to dinner. You're going to promise them the world. You're going to say, hey, you want this guy? I'll go and do that guy. It's just nasty business, right? So wanting to go ahead and, and, and be... Uh, give the Jews a favor. He said to Paul, hey, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? In other words, I'll convene, the, the, I'll convene it. I'll be in charge of it, not the Sanhedrin. Would, are you willing to do that? And Paul answers, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. <laughs> Paul's kind of getting a little ticked, it seems. I'm reading into that. Or how about you? Uh, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought out against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And verse 12, after, after he had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you're going to go. And so Paul's, he's just getting tired of it. He's getting tired of the politics, it seems. He's seeing that there's political favors going on. And he goes, you know, I'm innocent, buddy. You know this is a sham. Am I not being tried before Caesar's court? Why have I been here for two years? I'm not going back before the Jews. I realize you're the new guy. I realize you're, you know, where's justice, huh? He says, I'm not going. I'm a Roman citizen, and I appeal to Caesar. And, and this is where the right of any citizen of Rome to appeal to Caesar. We have an appeal system in our courts, do we not? So you get charged with something, then you can appeal to the next level, the next level, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Isn't that quite amazing? And then they can tell you, I don't want to listen to it. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? That, this is the same thing going on back then. And so there's this form of justice, this appeal to Caesar, and what would happen as soon as he appealed, everything would stop and they would be, and they immediately the court would stop and they would just go before Caesar. And that was the right of a Roman to be able to do that in this circumstance. And so Paul's getting the run around. He says, I'm going to Rome. And he appeals to Caesar. And after that, 
Um, uh, in verse 12, it says, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you're going to go. Well, there's some time between when Paul sets sail. It's not like he gets on a flight the next day. You have ships and you've got to arrange travel and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, you know, as you're going to read later in Acts, it's not like just we say, hey, I'm flying over to Seattle. It's like I've got to catch a car to Kennewick and Kennewick back over. To, you know, it's just a long, long trip. You've got to arrange all this stuff. And so in verse 13, it says a few days later during this waiting period, King Agrippa and Bernice, that's his sister, King's, the king's sister, arrive at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Festus is the new guy. The king, who is over all the governors there, comes in and says hello to Festus. Hey, glad you're in charge now. And since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. And he said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. And when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. And I told them that uh, this is not a Roman custom to hand over anybody before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. And when they came here, I'm leaving out that I wanted to do that in Jerusalem, but that's okay. Uh, Making yourself look good. Verse 17, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. And when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about the dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I mean, you can just tell this Roman is just totally confused. He's going, they're having a squabble about stuff he has no clue about. And in verse 20, he goes, uh, it was a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he'd be willing to go up to Jerusalem. Oh, there we go. And stand trial there on these charges. And he didn't notice, he didn't mention the favor with the Jews. Verse 21, but when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, tomorrow you're going to hear him. And so King Agrippa here, who is, I know you're going to really care about all this, but King Agrippa II is the great-grandson of King Herod the Great, the one who built the temple, the one who was uh, basically murdered all the babies when Jesus was born, all that type of stuff, right? He's the great-grandson. Agrippa II is the son of Agrippa I. I know you math people are trying to figure that out. (laughs) I saw a funny t-shirt the other day that said uh, four out of three people have difficulty with math. Yeah, it was pretty funny. (laughs) So Agrippa II is the son of Agrippa I, who died right outside where they're meeting. This guy's dad was the one who was there in Acts chapter 6 or something like that. Uh, No, Acts, I can't remember where it is. Earlier in Acts. And he was wearing all that silver. Remember, he was wearing the silver and the sun shined on him and all the people were there. They said, oh, that's a God, not a man, a God, not a man. And all of a sudden he started to keel over and and the Bible says he's eaten by worms, basically, his, his intestines. It's kind of like, I don't know what happened there, but let's not get into that. <laughs> he killed over it outside. That's this guy's dad. That's very helpful for you. Verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, right, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officials and the prominent men of the city. 
any of you have ever been in any uh, uh, government type things and, and how official it is and, and everybody busts into the room and there's all these uh, formalities and the high people of the city and you can just imagine all the pomp and circumstance and all these types of things. Everybody, all the king's here, the governor's here and, 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 and it's just a big deal. And all the military uh, people with all their uh, sashes and all these things. And so verse 24, well, well, Paul was brought in. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, verse 24, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live anymore. So obviously Paul did not have a very big fan club. A lot of people wanted him dead. Verse 25, I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. Verse 26, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. I don't know what to say. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. No kidding. (laughs) Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul motioned with his hands and begins his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially Uh, So, because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul was fortunate to stand before this king in his mind for a couple reasons. The first was that he was a Jew. Remember, Drusilla was a Jewess. He's a Jew. Jews get Jewish things. That's very important. How many of us, uh, you know, cannot relate to different cultures because we just haven't had, or different religions or backgrounds and all that kind of stuff, we just don't understand. I've been in the Philippines and there are customs that I don't understand and they all understand. I'm standing there and a little kid falls on the ground and everybody just laughs and points and laughs and points and laughs and points. And I'm just going, what are you doing? And then a Filipino had to explain to me, we're helping them save face. And I don't even get that. But in other words, uh, don't want them to show a sign of weakness would be to help them out. You know, they've got to, I don't even get it. See, I'm just kind of removed from it. Uh, sitting in a hallway and a lady comes by to me in the Philippines and, and she comes by, she's like, and I'm just like, what did I do? And that's her polite way of saying, excuse me. I don't get it. And then they call you and go, come here. That's how they call people. And you go, Am I a dog? They're like, no, if you go like this, you're a dog. So, I mean, there's just things we just don't get, right? And so Paul's like, thank you. I'm talking to a Jew, right? You get it? Okay, cool. And so this Jewish king is very important. Back in Acts 19, uh, Jesus told Ananias, who is, uh, well, that's one reason that he was a Jew. And the second reason is that, is that Paul is actually standing before kings to witness. Jesus said that he would do that. Remember he was talking to Ananias, and Ananias, the guy who would go lay hands on Paul, Saul back then? He told him, he said, hey, go and and, and put your hands on this guy, Saul of Tarsus. And he's like, are you kidding me? That's the guy who likes to kill us. 
And he goes, no, 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 no. I, listen, this guy is special. And if you remember, it said, go, for he is a chosen vessel back in Acts 19. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And now Paul is standing before the kings. How would he get there? How did that all happen? How, the circumstances. And this is where you see the providence of God in our lives. You see it in Paul's life. How, it, you never had that moment when God told you something in your heart or he gave you something in your word and all of a sudden you're in that moment and you didn't know how it would be there or how it would come about or how all the circumstances would come together, but nevertheless there you are and it would have been never the way that you decided. I would have tried to petition people and get in front of people and all this type of stuff to make God's will happen. Paul did the exact opposite. He got persecuted, put in jail, and brought up through the legal system. And here he was standing before the king and eventually before Caesar, who would eventually take his life. Pretty wild stuff. But Paul is standing before a king. And he's standing before Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa, uh, and he was a Jew, and he, was un- he understood the uh, customs. Now, I want to mind you, they, they hated the Herodians, the Herod family, because they were also Roman sympathizers. Does that make sense? They were kind of Jews, but they weren't like full-on Jews. They were like Jewish in name only. So I have no idea uh, what the political... Uh, tension was in the room, but Paul knew that he was accustomed. And so Paul begs for his patience, and he begins to explain himself in verse 4 through 26. And he starts by giving his testimony. He starts by giving his testimony. Do you know your testimony, church? I was this, and then Jesus did this, and now I'm this. Does anybody have that going on in their lives? Are you able to articulate that to a person? Are you able to, you know, one of the things that when I got uh, trained for missions... It's called Adam Training, A Taste of Missions. And they would send us down to Mexico. And um, yes, they were with us, but it was quite crazy. Um, it was only, you know, missions training. I'm going an hour away from San Diego, right? <laughs> it is another world. Um, but they would tell you, have your testimony ready to share. And share it like in a 10-second in a, in a version, a 30-second, a minute, and five minutes. And just have yourself being able to articulate who you are, what Jesus did and, and, who, and what, what you're doing now, what Christ is doing through you now. That's important for each of us to have as a witness. Well, <clears throat> it says in verse 4 of chapter 20, uh, 26, uh, the Jewish people all know the way I lived here since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have all known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Pharisees were the people who studied the word day and night. They kept all the laws. They were the ones that everybody looked to and go, oh my gosh, if anybody's going to be saved, it is them, because they're spotless. And, and Paul would later describe himself Pharisee, I was the top Pharisee of all the Pharisees. You want to know what Pharisees, I was the most extreme Pharisee of all of them. He talks about that in other places. Verse 6, he said, Now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. 
This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, King Agrippa. It is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul starts out and says, I've been among these people. They know who I am. They knew where I grew up. They knew my attitude. They knew that I was one of them. I was better than them. I was more dedicated than any of them to their own cause, is what he's saying. I was an extremist. And then he says, listen, as Jews, we all have hope in the resurrection. Pharisees particularly. Sadducees, not so much. And he says, I'm standing before you today because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly why he was persecuted, because he believed that Jesus Christ was their Messiah and that he rose again from the grave. And he proclaimed that to every single person. And Paul is saying what the Bible teaches is not different from what I am proclaiming. I'm actually that proclaiming the fulfillment of what all the law and the prophets talked about. That the Messiah would come, he would suffer, he would die, he would rise again on the third day. Now, the same thing with the Jews today. They don't believe that the Messiah has come. They're waiting for the Messiah. And it's going to be sad when that day comes and when he's going to be the Antichrist or some crazy leader. You know what I mean? But their hearts are hardened towards this. And so Paul brings the resurrection of Jesus Christ front and center. And Paul says, look, I was a Pharisee and I believed all these things. If you just read your Bible, the Old Testament Torah part, you're going to see that that's what it talked about from the very beginning until the end of the New Testament of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. And we see this progressive revelation in Scripture. As you're reading in the very Old Testament, it's more concealed. But the closer you get to the New Testament, the more revealed it is. In the Old Testament, it's like in pictures and types. And then it starts to come out in plainer language as you get closer to Jesus Christ. And that's also what happens with the Messiah. It starts to become more and more clear of who he is and what he's about. But just for example, the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3.15, right there in the very first couple chapters of the Bible, it says, And I will put enmity or war between you, that is Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. One of the very first prophecies of Jesus Christ, that enemy would come and strike him, but guess what? In the end, what would happen with Jesus? He would crush his head. Jesus was bitten. He experienced death, but he rose again and crushed his head. Amen. And so Satan struck Jesus' heel, but Jesus rose to crush him. All praise the Lord. Moving on, I'm not even grabbing all of them, but Abraham in Genesis 22, when God tested him by having him bring his only son Isaac to offer him. This was the son of promise. Now, when we read that, we go, what are you doing, God? That's totally against your character, and it totally was. He would not have us sacrifice our own sons and daughters for sin. That's not what what he's about. But he took Abraham, the son of promise, because it was a picture and type of Jesus Christ. And so here we have a picture of a father taking a son, speaking to his servant, uh, who was named Eleazar. We don't see it in that scripture, which is by the Holy Spirit. So you got the father, son, Holy Spirit in that picture. I won't go there right now. But anyways... We're going to go over to this mountain and we will return in three days. 
And so a father takes his son to a mountain. When he gets to the top of the mountain, what happens? The son carries the wood on his back. He gets to the top of the mountain. The knife comes out. And the father is determined in his heart to obey God. And what's interesting is is in Hebrews, it says, He who had embraced the promise that through Isaac all the nations would be blessed, he was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Hebrews eleven eighteen says, Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. In other words, if I kill this guy, God's still going to have to make good on his promise. He'll just have to raise him, and raise, him, raise him up. And that was the reasoning in Abraham's mind. In other words, he believed God's word so much in his promise that no matter what happened to Isaac, Isaac would have to raise again because God said that through him all the nations would be blessed. Does that make sense? Trusted in the resurrection. Faith in the resurrection. Well, guess what? God stopped him. And as John and I were talking about the other day, the Lord said, he would, he said, stop Abraham. I will provide myself a sacrifice. And what happened 2,000 years later, and I believe on that very spot, 2,000 years later, the father brought his son up that hill and he did not stop. And the hammer came down. The knife plunged into the heart of Christ. And his son was sacrificed for you and for me. And his blood was shed. Knowing full well that his son would be raised again. And he was. Amen? The Old Testament speaks of the resurrection. And so Paul has got this thinking. King David, by the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 16, specifically verses 8 through 11, he speaks of the Messiah and the resurrection. He says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. And he starts speaking by the Spirit prophetically of the Messiah here. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Not going to stay in the grave. You're going to be, you're going to see life again. Speaking of the Messiah, or perhaps the most vivid description of, of the resurrection in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, I'm going to read the section, this part of it, starting in verse 8, says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had not done any violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will not see his offspring prolong in days. I'm sorry, he will see, sorry, he will see his offspring prolong in days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressions. Jesus died and it was God's will to crush him for us. But he will not stay that way. He would see life and reign and rule. And he did. He, he ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. The Old Testament is full of the doctrine of the resurrection. 
We need to know this. What a beautiful prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we could go on and on and speak of Jonah. Three days dead in the the belly of the whale, yet he came back to life. Or perhaps Joseph. Remember when he was in prison, the the cupbearer and the the winemaker. The the cupbearer and the the, uh, baker. Remember that? He had the dream. What happened to one of them? The cupbearer was restored after three days and the other one died. One died, one was restored. And you have the picture of the bread and the wine. Just amazing pictures in the Old Testament. It goes on and on and on and on. All the imagery. What man could think that up? That's the promise the Bible declares. Paul says to Festus in the gang, verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Don't you read your Bible? Right? Don't you read your Bible? Isn't that what it is all pointing to? Jesus Christ, the Messiah? That is the promise that the Bible declares, that the Messiah would die for the sins of mankind. He would rise again, proving that he has power over sin, power over death. You will all die. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then to judgment. But guess what? There's a clause. Jesus Christ rules over sin and death. And through him we have life. And I pray he comes back. We don't even have to taste death. But we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's what I'm asking for. Praise the Lord. But if not. And if cancer gets us. So whatever it is. If we go down. Guess what? We're coming back up. We're coming back up. And by the way, if you don't believe in Christ, you're coming back up to the judgment, the great white throne judgment. But for us, those of us who believe in Christ, you will be brought before the mercy seat of God where I believe it will be a time of sorrow as well where all the crud we've got will be burned away. But what will be left is rewards. And for what we've done in our obedience to the, to the Lord in this body, we will be rewarded eternally. So now counts. Amen? Not to save for those who are saved, but for rewards in eternal kingdom. Think of eternity. Got to go backwards. Think of now. This is now, and eternity just goes on forever. Live for Jesus now and enjoy eternity forever. Live for yourself now and enjoy, you know, hell. Well, hell, yeah, enjoy hell. But I'm just saying, if you live, you deny Christ. I mean, that's a long time. It's not even time. So we beg people, we plead with people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of our sin and death, our only hope. And so, read your Bible, guys. It's what he's saying. This is the hope. That's the promise. That, that is Jesus. Paul says, I believe the scriptures. I believe the resurrection of the Messiah. I believe in Jesus. Let's get through this. And then in verse 9, Paul begins to explain how he came a believer. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was a punk. And then it just... <laughs> and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On, on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And in, in, in Paul's mind, he's thinking of those people. He's thinking of Stephen and all the things that he did against Christ. How many of you have had horrible backgrounds? How many of you feel like your sins have just racked your life? 
Paul killed Christians. He persecuted Christians. And then God saves him and ends up having him write the New Testament, basically. You think you're a bad guy, bad gal? Think you got a bad? You think God's grace isn't big enough? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 17, I thank Christ our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a changed man, amen? Changed women, praise the Lord. He is trustworthy saying that, uh, that, that here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm chief of sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, Paul is saying, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. And as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life, that's for us. You think you got it bad? You think you've done some things? Paul was the worst. And God, what did he do with his life? What mercy did he pour out upon him? And he goes, now into the king eternal, now to the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. If you're not a worshiper, you haven't experienced the grace of God. You just haven't. That's what it causes people to do. This is not about singing. This is about going, you are awesome, I am not. I'll praise you for your mercy. And so Paul is given his testimony. And that's our witness to the world. Who were you when Christ met you? What did God do in your life by the grace of God? Totally by his grace. Amen? Paul says, on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them. I was the executioner there. Deciding vote. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them. I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Here's a, here, if you want to know if you're obsessed with something, do you go to another city to do it or to get it? You know, do you leave convenience? Are you, are you going after it? You know, for some it's hunting or whatever it is, you know, and, you know, we'd go down to the stadium and watch football games and all that stuff. But for Paul, it was hunting Christians. That's kind of, that's kind of what he did. That was his hobby. It's what he was obsessed with. Verse 12, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the priest, but about noon, King Agrippa, he's addressing him. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me with my companions. 14, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the, the goads. Agrippa, I was dead set against Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that he's alive. He changed my life. I was going one way, and now it's another that's what Jesus does to a human being. That's what the gospel does to us. He literally appeared to Paul. He spoke to Paul. And what Jesus said to Paul was getting Paul to think, why, why are you persecuting me? Now, it's interesting. Who was Paul persecuting? Jesus does not differentiate between 
you and him. You are his body. And when you get persecuted, guess who gets persecuted? He does, and he takes it extremely personally. Know that. Secondly, he lets Paul know that he's in a losing fight. Why are you kicking against the goads? The goad was like a spear-type thing with a metal rod at the end, and the animals would, would uh, you know, you'd direct the animals with it. You'd poke them, and they decide they didn't like that, and they kick against it. Well, guess what happens? You get more of the spear. What are you doing? This is a losing fight, Paul. Verse 15. You know, wait, just real quickly. That, that means that, that living against, contrary to Christ, in opposition, a life that is in opposition to Jesus Christ becomes increasingly painful and is a losing battle. Just want us to know that. That's for Christians and non-Christians. Verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you, appointed you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. We're almost there, everybody. Come on now. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I was going one way. Jesus appeared to me, confronted my sins, humbled me, and then he stood me on my feet and sent me on my way in his service. That's what God does. He confronts us with our sin. Right? What are you doing? He cleanses us. He stands us on solid ground. And he says, now I have a plan for your life. And go. And notice the, all the eyes in those verses. They're from Jesus. I am Jesus, I have appeared, I will rescue, I am sending you. You see, when Jesus is Lord of our life, he appoints, he rescues, he sends, he's in charge. Paul is not. Amen? Got to be careful about what I will do, where I will go, and what my plans are. Who's Lord? Who's Lord? Jesus' purpose for Paul was to be a witness. And he said there, he's going to be, you have appointed you to be a, a, wit, a servant and a witness. That's what we're called to be, servant and witnesses of Jesus Christ. We serve him. What do you want, Lord? And we proclaim him by how we live and what we do. Paul needed to know up front that Jesus would rescue him because when you start following Christ, guess what? You're going against the enemy. And you're going to get hit. And we need to know as Christians that we need to be faithful to the Lord, but guess who, into what he's called us to do, knowing full well that he will rescue us. He is our protection. And that's hard, especially when you start going against family or whatever it might be. Jesus was Paul's security and safety. Jesus had a specific plan for Paul. We'll hold off there, and we'll finish up that chapter. I almost got through two chapters. Fall short again, Lord. <laughs> He's okay with it. Lord, we're all Pauls in this room. In just deep, deep need of your grace. And how thankful we are that you came and you appeared to us, Lord, at some point in time. You didn't have to, but you did because you loved to. You came to your enemy and you penetrated that heart and that wall of darkness 
And you came in with a light that blazed like 10,000 suns and you burnt away our sin. And you set us on the right path. And then you said, follow me. Deny yourself every day and follow me. And like you said to your disciples, and I will make you. And Lord, each of us has a story of what we were and when you busted in and now what you've made us to be. And Lord, if we haven't been obedient to that call, we just pray that you're for your forgiveness. And Lord, that we would be reminded that you call the shots. But God, I'm praying for the heart this morning in here who has not surrendered, who's still on the other side. They could be very religious like Paul, or they could be just hardened in their heart. Lord, I pray that through the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, as we look at what happened today, it's nothing extraordinary from our perspective. But your word is so powerful. Things were said. Your word spoke. Characters were there. Maybe we related in some way. But I know you're speaking to people's hearts this morning. And if that's you and you haven't received the Lord this morning, you know that you're on the wrong side. Um... Jesus is here to offer, your, to offer you forgiveness. But you must repent. you got to say, Lord, you're right about where I'm going and what I'm doing. Forgive me. I'm wrong. And you change your life. You start to go in a different way, but you realize that that's actually God working in and through you to do that. He strengthened Paul. He'll strengthen you. So, Lord, if there's someone here who hasn't received you, I ask that you would just pierce their heart that they would cry out to you and ask for forgiveness. And Lord, you'd flood them with your grace. You'd stand them up on their feet where they couldn't stand themselves and you'd set them on the path that you have called for them a new life. If that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand so we can pray for you. Perhaps some of you have just been walking hard-heartedly towards the Lord. I want you to raise your hand so we can pray together. This is for your heart. I'm not going to bring you up in front of the church hall and stuff. Raise your hand. Say, that's me. Yep, God bless you. Me too, right here. I'm number one. God bless you. Lord, you see the hands raised. You see the hearts. Would you show them your mercy? Would you set them on the right path? Would you lead them to your word and to your counsel and to the freedom, Lord, of walking tight with you? Lord God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for these stories, Lord, that are real people that you've encountered and changed. And we ask that that would continue to happen. I pray that we wouldn't just be a people who sit here and go through a trial date or whatever it might be or through cancer treatment or whatever it might be, but that we would take every opportunity to witness for you. Every opportunity. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.